Well, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. So when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your grace. We thank you for the sending of your son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God, for us. And this morning, as we, as we gather here and we give uh, time and energy and our, our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear your word, uh, we pray, Father, that we would receive it with faith. And we would ask this morning that our hearts would not be hardened as we hear your word, but instead they would be softened and humbled. And that in receiving your word with faith, you would direct us and lead us and help us to obey what you call us to. We long to please you, Lord, and we long to grow, and we long to experience the life and light that you are for us in Christ. So help us now by your grace, would your spirit take your word and make us alive to it today? Feed us, we pray, and I ask this now in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You could be seated. Well, How do you live with faith when you're in a crossroads situation? How do you live with faith when you're in a moment in your life where the path ahead of you may be darkened? You don't know know what's beyond it, and you don't know how to take the next step. You don't even know what the next step might be, but you know as a Christian, and I'm I'm aiming my comments this morning, or, or sermon this morning towards you who are followers of Jesus already, I'm aiming it this way, that as we, we desire to be and consider ourselves people of faith, when we, when we come to those, those dark moments in our life or where there's, a, there's not a clear path in front of us or there's a crossroad and there's two difficult decisions ahead of us, what, what governs that? How do, we, how do we walk as people of faith in, in a future that's unknown? I would describe a crossroad situation as this. It's, it's a situation where you don't know where, what's next or where the road goes. You just can't see around the bend or the path is really dark in front of you. You know that maybe in front of you lie some options and that they could, they could cost you. It could be, it could be something that, that takes from you, that there's a sense of loss and there's a reality that, that what is in front of you may may come up to be a loss in your life or in your way. It could, it could result in something painful to you, that the, what's ahead may, may harm or hurt your heart and your life and your soul. And you, just, you think about what's ahead and you want to have a righteous response, you want to be a person of faith in Christ, and yet the, the path in front of you, as far as you can tell, only leads to some pain and some heartbreak and some agony. Maybe it's just a life in front of you or a decision in front of you that's, 
got a big question mark on it. You're not sure of where it goes, what the outcomes will be, how this will look. And it's, it's nerve-wracking to take that next step and to, to walk in faith and to, to move forward because the question marks are just there, and it's difficult. What does that look like? How do you live in faith when you're in a crossroads situation? Well, as I mentioned, we are looking at the story of the birth of Christ through the eyewitness accounts of those who were there, through the main characters, as it were, who, who saw and were part of and are told of in the scriptures of being there with the birth of Jesus. And last Sunday, we, we looked at and saw the story through the eyes of Mary, particularly when the angel Gabriel came and announced to her that she, as a virgin, would bear the Son of God and give birth to the, to the Christ, to the Messiah. Through these eyewitness accounts, we are looking at and we're perceiving how should we perceive God? How should we walk in faith? What do their lives show us about how we today would live and embrace and trust Christ who's come for us and for our salvation. With looking at Mary last week, this week we want to turn and look at one of the other main characters, her husband, Joseph, and see how he perceived this. Joseph stands in a really particular and unique place in the story here because of where he stands as Mary's husband, yet not the father of Jesus. How does he deal with and uh, come to understand and embrace what God is doing in the world through this supernatural activity of a virgin birth, and what does it mean for him to walk as a man of faith? I love what Matthew says about Joseph, just by way of describing who he is. I find this in verse 19. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man, uh, the, the Greek there literally translated could be righteous man. Joseph is a man of high character of high integrity. He is the right kind of guy. And I love seeing descriptions of, of people like this in the scripture. When, when I read uh, a writer talk about some person's character, or their, their nature, their makeup, it kind of makes my ears perk up and I want to listen in and go, okay, what is it about that person? What is it about the way they live their life that they could, they could have that kind of title or that kind of declaration about who they are? And so when I, when I hear in the Old Testament scriptures about how Moses is described as the most humble man who walked the face of the earth, which, by the way, I don't think Moses said that about himself. That wouldn't be very humble, but maybe somebody later came in and wrote that in there. How does, how does that describe Moses? What is, is it about Moses' life that, that someone would say he's super humble, especially the leader that Moses was and the way he, the way he lived and the way he followed God and the way he trusted him? Or, or there's other statements in the Scripture that are more negative, and you think about Solomon, who is described as one who was half-hearted, his, his heart was led away from the Lord God. He started well, but, but as he went on through his life, he was distracted from God, taken away, and so he became a half-hearted man. And what is it about his life? What is it about what was going on in his heart, and his view and perception of God, that caused him to be declared as someone who's half-hearted? And so I find it really interesting here when we encounter Joseph, this relatively unknown common man, the Bible, Matthew, the writer of this gospel here, describes him as a righteous man. What is it about his life that accounts for that? 
Joseph is introduced to us just in the first parts of Matthew's gospel there in the genealogy. Matthew there describes from going back all the way to Abraham, from Abraham all the way to Joseph, the lineage or the genealogy is the term, a family tree of Jesus, the Messiah. And he's doing that to show how God's promises to Abraham, to the patriarchs, to David, and to the rest of Israel all come to flourishing, all come to fulfillment in Christ. And so we meet Joseph whose father is Jacob, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. But we don't know much about Joseph beyond what we read there and what we find here in this passage in Matthew 1 and 2. Uh, Joseph seems to be a man who lived in Nazareth. Um, Later in Matthew's gospel, some of Jesus' enemies and some of his critics describe Jesus as the son of the carpenter, uh, the word there meaning builder. So Joseph was probably a carpenter. He had a skilled trade that he, uh, he, he worked at, whether that was building tables or chairs, or more likely he was a construction guy. He was a, maybe a contractor, and he worked at building homes and structures and that sort of thing. He's a common, ordinary, everyday, blue-collar kind of guy. He's just a normal human being. Nothing flashy, he's not a king, he doesn't live in royalty, he's not wealthy, he lives in an out-of-place community, a small town, working hard with his hands, just a quiet man that the Bible describes as righteous, as just. What is it about that? And, And particularly here in this story, where there is such a huge crossroads in front of him. I mean, if anybody stood in a crossroads situation, it's Joseph here in this moment, he, he's married. This is how Matthew describes him. He is, verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Jesus' mother Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. That, that term there describes an engagement that's a little bit more serious and a little bit more involved than what an engagement would be here in our culture today. Today, if you want to marry someone, you get down on your knee, you have a ring, you propose to them, will you marry me? She gets all teary-eyed and smiles and says yes. Hopefully that's how it works out for you guys. Uh, and she says yes, and the ring is there. And that's like the it. That's the, the formal significance of the engagement. And then you plan a date, and you start getting ready for that wedding, and all that's ahead of you. But there's nothing legally binding that, that connects that engagement to the marriage process. In Jewish culture, it was much different. When, when a woman was proposed to or when they settled on an engagement, it was really an, an arrangement between uh, a man and her father and their family, they would make a legally binding document. They would have witnesses that would sign it. It would almost be like signing the marriage license ahead of time, but a year in advance. And she would continue to live with her family under her father's roof and be provided and cared for by them. But the husband would be uh, readying the house and the home and the family and securing income and preparing to receive his bride. He would pay a dowry to, uh, to her father. And there was this legally binding sense that they were already married, but not yet. They hadn't consummated the marriage, and it hadn't brought it to its full union. And so Joseph and Mary stand in this very serious, legally binding status of relationship. This is beyond Facebook official. This is serious uh, together in this state. And what happens here for Joseph is this crossroad moment where it's discovered. This is how the, uh, the translation reads. It, they, she was found out to be with child. Some other translations say it was discovered that she was with child. She's pregnant. Now that puts Joseph in a really awkward position. Because he's either the father and he's had sex with his uh, engaged uh, soon-to-be wife before marriage... 
or he's not the father and she's been unfaithful to him with some other man because that's just naturally how these things work. He's on the horns of a dilemma in this crossroads. And so he's got to figure out as a man of faith, as a righteous man, what are his next steps? Where does he go from here knowing that the woman that he was excited about marrying, looking forward to spending the rest of his life with, that she potentially has been unfaithful to him. And there, is, there are some serious consequences uh, to that. There's huge issues. It's a, in their culture, a culture of honor and shame. She has brought deep shame upon herself and upon him. Well, that moment in that context, Joseph, we read in verse 19... He decides to do what is rightful and legal and even biblical in his position, and that is he resolved to divorce her. But the way he decides to go about that is surprising to us. Joseph has the right, he has the, he has the position, as it were, to just bring it all out, to just expose her completely. He's not been unfaithful. He hasn't wronged anybody She's the wrongdoer, and he can bring her out into the community. He can shame her in front of everyone, and Nazareth is a small town, maybe 500 at the most in the community. Everybody knows everybody, and everyone knows what's going on. The gossip is flying around like crazy. Joseph could bring her out, maybe even have her publicly executed for her transgression and her unfaithfulness and shame that she's brought down on herself and on him. But he takes a different tactic at this moment. Being a just man, he's unwilling to put her to shame. He resolves to divorce her quietly. He takes the the path of righteousness and the path of mercy in righteousness by legally stepping into what he can and should do, but by doing it in such a way that it's merciful to her. Doesn't expose her sin, doesn't seek to shame her name, doesn't seem to seek to bring the whole hammer of justice and fury down upon her. It's a brilliant picture of how God loves us, is merciful to us. We don't deserve any of his kindness. We don't deserve any of his mercy. We've shamed his name, and yet he loves us. He doesn't abandon us at all. He keeps us. Joseph here in considering all this and in standing before this crossroads is dealing with how does he as a righteous man, as a man of faith, respond to God, respond to what God is doing in righteousness. Joseph points out here, we see through his life that his true faith results in a righteous response. His trust in the Lord and trust in what God's promises are and what God is doing works itself out in the way that he lives towards Mary and towards his community and even towards this child that is not his in a way that is righteous and upstanding and faithful. He shows us a model of how we as people of faith who stand at a crossroads in our own lives. And it's not lost on me this morning that maybe that's where you're at. You, you look at the, the road in front of you, and you can't see down the path. You don't know what's ahead. It's dark. There's choices in front of you that both options seem horrible. They don't seem to work out, out well at all. And, and, and you're wondering, God, I'm trusting you. I want to trust you, but I don't, know, I don't know what steps to take. I don't know what's here in front of me. How do I, in trusting you and believing you and knowing you, how, how do I take that next step? Where do I go, even if it hurts me, even if it's painful, even if it may cause sorrow and loss in my life, even if I don't know, God, how can we trust you? How can we respond to you 
trusting you in a righteous way. And from Joseph's life here, I want to show us in just these few minutes what this righteous response of faith really looks like. If we would say to God today, yes, we, we believe you, we trust you, we want to walk in faith, how do we know what the next step is? In the way that we see Jesus, or, sorry, in the way we see Joseph receiving the word from God about what is happening in Mary and this child that is coming, we'll find some patterns for us to be able to walk in righteousness ourselves. We'll find some ways in which we can respond to God in faith righteously, in a way that pleases Him, and it all centers around what we do with the Word of God. What do we do with what God has revealed and with what God has shown us? True faith shows itself in how we take His revelation and His Word for us and how it works itself out in our lives. So if true faith results in a righteous response, then what does that righteous response of faith look like for us? I'll, I'll show us two ways. First of all, a righteous response of faith trusts the Word of God. It, it trusts what God says. We, as we re- respond in faith, we're saying, yes, God, what you say is true, and I believe it, and I accept it, and I place myself humbly under it. Now, Joseph here, his rightful and uh, legal obligation and option is for him to divorce his wife. It's, it's, to bring, it's to uphold his honor and to bring shame upon her for her dishonor. His, his options are biblical. He can legally divorce her, publicly shame her, but him being a just man, he tie, decides to take the steps of mercy. He's unwilling to put her to shame. He, he resolves to end the marriage, rightfully so, but to do it in a quiet way, in a way that, that preserves some dignity and honor to her. His merciful actions on his part are to spare her complete humiliation and to keep himself and her from being a total social outcast. He's ready to do this. Joseph is not wrong in pursuing this or doing this. And and yet, he has something to encounter and deal with, the Word of God. God speaks to and intersects Joseph's life here in this moment to give him the pattern and the path forward. Notice with me in verse 20. As he considered these things, so I even love the way that Joseph is is thoughtful about this. He's wise. He's at the crossroads, and he knows it's not an easy decision. It's not a straightforward, it's painful, it's it's a loss to himself. It hurts, but he's not going to make a rash, impulsive, emotional, deeply emotionally driven decision. He's going to process this carefully. I love the way that this idea of considering these things is a way of wisdom. It's going to slow the roll, think it through, pray it out. And even in this sense of considering it, I believe that Joseph here is asking God for wisdom. He's, he's not just going it alone. He's, he's a man of faith. He knows the Lord. And, and he's, in considering this, he's crying out to God and saying, God, lead me, direct my steps, help me know what to do in this situation. I think he's just... He's just emulating what his, this is speculative just to a degree, but his son James, the brother of Jesus who wrote the epistle of James, what his son James picked up later. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Joseph, yeah, Joseph in considering this is asking God for wisdom. He's seeking to know God's will in this way. And God gives him his will. He gives him his word. He speaks in. Here's what happens. Behold. Look here, we get to see now as eyewitnesses what Joseph saw. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this is taking place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's where the surprising word of God comes. An angel appears. And he's a messenger, and he has a word from God to Joseph about how he should live in this situation and what he should do. And he tells Joseph, take Mary as your wife. Don't shame her. Don't abandon her. Don't divorce her. Don't be afraid. He gives a word of confidence, a word of assurance and encouragement. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, even though it will mean you're looked down on even though it will mean you will take a loss, even though you will be a social outcast. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God is at work, Joseph, in this situation and in this reality in a way that is above and beyond natural conception. It's supernatural power of God overshadowing Mary. Joseph doesn't have to understand it. He doesn't have to know all the science on it or how it works out or any of that. He has the encouragement and the strength of the word of God to not be afraid and to keep Mary, to marry her. Furthermore, this angel proclaims that the son that she will bear, his name will be Jesus. He he gives Joseph a direct command, name him, you shall call his name Jesus. It's the Hebrew Joshua, which means God saves. For this one, this son, will save his people from their sins. The angel goes on and says, don't you remember the scriptures? This is all going to fulfill what Isaiah has said. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Joseph, what God is doing here in the womb of Mary is from him. It's to bring about his promises and his purposes of salvation in the world. Everything that has been culminating in human history and in Israel's history up to this point, it's all centered right in Christ who's coming into the world through the womb of your wife, Mary. It's a huge statement for Joseph. It's a profound mystery and reality. And Joseph here is given the opportunity to show his faith by trusting the word and the purposes of God, even if they seem counterintuitive to what would be expected. This angel is calling Joseph to respond in faith and trust to the word of God. Now, I think sometimes for us, we... We go, well, can I have the Joseph experience? Like we stand at those crossroad moments of our life. We don't know what's down the road. We're we're trying to faithfully, righteously plot and plan and take those next steps. And we don't know what's next. And so we wish, like, hey, God, would you just send the angel? You know, I'll be asleep from, you know, 11 p.m. tonight till, you know, probably 4.30 in the morning tomorrow. So just sometime in that time frame, can we have a little angel, angelic visitation, and I can get it, like you can just tell me what to do there. And so we, we long for and we desire these angelic visitations that would just really give us clarity about what steps we need to take. And yet, I, I would want to just caution you about that because I think we have it far better. Do you realize that every time an angel from the Lord shows up in Scripture, he's not coming up with his own ideas, He doesn't show up to somebody and say, hey, you know, I was mulling around heaven the other day, and I haven't run this by God yet, but I thought this would be really cool. You should do that. He never picks up on his own will or his own desire. He comes as a messenger of the word of God, always delivering God's word to his recipients. 
we have here the word of God. Fully, completely. Everything that God desires for us to know, to, to understand, and to experience about faith and walking with him and this life and the next is found here in the scriptures for us. Holy Scripture, the Word of God, is complete and full and accurate and faithful in every way. The angelic visitations were how Revelation was handed down in the old times. But we have the written and inspired Word of God, which are complete in Christ. And we are to trust His Word. Joseph, all he's doing is showing us what we should do in responding righteously. We should look to God's Word. We should hear it. We should receive it. And we should believe it. We should say, yes, here it is. Uh, you might ask, well, what does it mean to trust the word? What, is this, what does this look like in practice? How do, we, how do we go about this? Well, I'll point us just a few thoughts from uh, the writer of Hebrews. He thinks about the word of God and how we should engage it and what it, what it truly means to trust the word. I find these helpful for me in thinking about what this faith and trust in God's word really looks like. First of all, it means that we are to pay close attention to the word. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. We need to be serious about the word of God. For, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, so the angels showed up and they spoke, and what they spoke was true and good, yet, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation revealed to us in the scriptures, in the word of God, the writer of Hebrews' point here is like we need to perk up our ears, tune in, get our eyes on the pages of Scripture all the more. You, you can't know how to righteously respond in faith to God as you stand before a crossroads that's dark in front of your life if you don't know what God says. And he's spoken. He's revealed himself. He's directed our steps and our ways by his word. And so for us to trust his word means we need to pay attention all the more to it. We need to become serious about the word of God, embracing it in our lives, receiving it as a means by which God speaks to us and cleanses us and washes us and makes us new. If you are one who stands back from the word of God, who, who maybe ignores or diminishes or just doesn't have time for the word of God, you're missing out on the serious, direct revelation of God for your life. You're, how are you going to know what to do? How are you going to know what the righteous response of faith looks like? No, we must pay. To trust the word of God means to pay close attention to the word. It's, it's to be the servant who says to the master, my ears are open. I'm listening. I'm looking for your signals. My eyes are on you. Furthermore, to trust the word of God means to humble ourselves, to humble ourselves before the word. It's a posture of our heart and our life. Sometimes when you read news and it makes us frustrated, it irritates us, it gets us a little angry, and we want to reject it and push it away. The same thing can happen with the Scripture, especially as the Scripture reveals and shows us, as the Spirit takes His Word and, and shows us where we're wrong and where we're in error. We go, okay. To receive and trust the Word means we humble ourselves. So the writer of Hebrews goes on in chapters 3 and says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, this is in the Psalms, Today, if you hear His voice... Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. That's sometimes a, a response that we just have when someone comes to us to, uh, to encourage us or to correct us even, to challenge us, say, hey, friend, I love you, but I, I'm, I'm aware that in your life there's just, you're, you're behaving this way and it's, it's off course. 
And, and we get defensive about that. We, oh, no, I'm, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. How dare you say that? We, we push and hold them at arm's length. How much so when the word of God comes to us as well? When the scripture says clearly, love your enemies, we go, oh, that's, that's not for me. We dance around what it might in, be interpreted as. And I know that the, not every scripture passage is fully clear for us, but where there is clarity calls us to humility. Today, if you, when you read the scriptures, is your heart open? Is it humble? Today, if you hear his voice, are you hardening it? Are you just checking a box? Okay, got the Bible reading done today. No more. To trust the word of God is to humble yourself. Furthermore, in verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, take care, brothers. So watch yourself. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Our hearts are deceitful. Nobody should trust your own heart. It's not going to lead you in a good path. And where we see that in our own lives and in the lives of others, we need to be aware and take care and call for humility. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I pray that every morning as I, as I open the scriptures, Lord, today, wherever I'm at in reading your word, there might be something here that I'm not gonna like. But don't let me hard my heart. Let me receive it with faith. Work it out within me. I commend that prayer to you as well. To humble ourselves, to trust the word means to pay close attention and to humble ourselves before the word. And, and then furthermore, it means to believe the word. To affirm and accept and say, yes, this is true. The writer of Hebrews, 4, uh, writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 goes on and he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, while we still have life and breath today, let us fear if any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We should be concerned that we all make it to the rest, that we all get there together. For good news came to us just as to them. And now he's pointing out the situation with Israel in the wilderness. And as they're wandering, they're hearing the word of God and they're grumbling and they're murmuring and they're hardening their hearts. And God says, go, take the promised land. And they're like, yeah, no, that's not so promised and pretty for me anymore. We're going to stay here, go back to Egypt. That good news came to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because they weren't united by faith with those who listened. Faith and the word of God weren't together. And so they heard the good news, but they, nope, hardened their heart, rejected it, stood back. And the rest didn't come. The rest of God, the peace of the promised land wasn't there. But he says in verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. That's where we find life is when we believe the word of God. When we take God's word to heart, to trust it means to say, yes, it's true. And I'm going to accept it and believe it and act on it. Righteousness that responds in faith affirms the word of God. It, it echoes what Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to, to those who take refuge in him. So trust the word of God, even when it may cost us something, even when it may look hard for us, even when it just stands beyond our, our reasoning and it's dark to trust the word of God says every word of God proves true and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust him because he's a shield to those who take refuge in him. I'm gonna just lean in and depend on him because his word shows me it's true. Joseph displays a righteous response of faith because he trusts God's word. He hears the word of God from the angel. Don't divorce this woman. Take her as your wife, because the child is going to be the Christ. You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Be God with us. That's what God's doing, Joseph. And Joseph believes. 
He responds righteously by believing the word of God. What about you? Do you trust the word of God? Do you believe it? Are you humbled by it? Are you paying close attention to it? It's where the response starts. But Joseph doesn't just hear and affirm God's word, say, yeah, that's nice, I like it, or yay, true, intellectually. He takes it to the next step. He's one who hears God's word, he believes God's word, and he obeys God's word. His faith is seen in action. A righteous response of faith trusts the word of God, but it also obeys the word of God. It obeys the word of God. Now, this is a really tight, short story here for us, but its conclusion and its concisity helps us. I mean, Joseph just gets right at obedience. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I love the simplicity and the practicality of what Matthew describes here from Joseph. he doesn't give, you know, he doesn't say, well, when Joseph got up from his sleep or he got up that next morning, he went and, you know, he started going around to his friends and some close buddies of his and say, hey, I had this really funky dream last night and some angel thing was there saying, hey, I should marry this woman. I don't know. Like, what do you all think? He doesn't start consulting everybody and just like, let's, let's put out a, a fleece and do like a 30-day test God on this sort of thing. He hears God's word and he gets right to the practical obedience of it. He did it. He took his wife. He obeyed God's word. He trusted God right away. There, there was no hindrance on this, no slowdown, no like, hey, let's pump the e-brake and make sure this is really a lucrative and wise decision. God has spoken. I believe God. I'll follow him. I'll obey. Even though it was at great cost to himself. Consider the impact that Joseph's obedience to God would have on his life and his reputation. The implications here are incredible. Tim Keller, in his book, Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truth Behind the Birth of Christ, just kind of unpacks this for us a little bit. He says, consider what the announcement of the angel meant to Joseph and to Mary. Mary's pregnant, and Joseph knows he's not the father, so he decides to break off the engagement. But the angel shows up and says, anyway, marry her. She is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But if Joseph marries her, everybody in that shame and honor society, everybody in that community, they will know that this child was not born nine or ten months after their their wedding, after they got married. They will know that she's already pregnant. That would mean either Joseph was and Mary had sex before marriage or that she was unfaithful to him. And as a result, they as a couple, Joseph is going to be shamed, socially excluded, and rejected. They are going to be second-class citizens forever. Joseph knows this. He's counting the cost. And as a righteous man, he says, I'll obey. I'll do what the Lord has said. I'll follow him at great cost to himself. You see, obedience to God's word is important. It is, it is the way we walk out our faith, even when it costs us, especially when it costs us. And, and note that, that if we were to spend more time in Matthew 2, we would see this isn't just a one-time event for Joseph. It's not just a one-day-of-obedience thing. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Every time Joseph has a word of God come to him, he's immediate in his obedience, regardless of the implications of it. So he goes to Bethlehem. Mary has the child. 
They're there for a few years. And imagine Joseph as a carpenter or a builder. He's getting everything, his new business set up in the community of Bethlehem. He's starting to pick up a good reputation. He's a hard worker. He's a skilled uh, craftsman. Hey, you should hire Joseph. You know, they got this young family and like do that. And so maybe his business is building and building. And then a few years later, some wise guys show up and they bring gifts and then they leave again. And you hear from an angel, Herod is coming down to kill every baby boy in town. Get out of there. Well, I've got my business. I've got, you know, like we're finally getting some stability and some security in this town. Like we're feeling pretty good. And the word of God says, run, flee. What does he do? Packs him up, gets out in the middle of the night. They're hours away, not days away. And they flee. He loses everything again. And they're there in Egypt for a while. Same sort of cycle. Things are getting good, building up the business. Family's doing okay, security. And the word of God comes again and says, Joseph, it's time to go back home. Go to Israel. Go to Nazareth. But man, I got everything set here. I'm comfortable. It's good. Why not? No, none of that. Okay, family, let's pack it up. Let's go. God's spoken. We obey. One New Testament commentator, he says it this way. In every scene, Joseph simply asked, Acts without speaking. We get no voice. Joseph has no lines in the story. His speech is to do the will of God. We may call him quiet Joseph. His hallmark is obedience, prompt, simple, and unspectacular obedience. And in this sense, Joseph prefigures one important feature in Matthew's understanding of righteousness. To be righteous is to simply obey the word of God. Friends, you may think you're a righteous person. You may think, yeah, I'm, I'm doing well in integrity. But if you're not obeying the word of God, you're deceived. You're blind to yourself. Joseph's obedience is shown in, his, in the instructions that he's given and is carrying them out. The angel has told him, Mary, marry this woman, Mary, Mary, and name the son. So he takes Mary as his wife. He legally marries her, but he doesn't have sexual intimacy with her. He doesn't consummate the wedding, the marriage until after she had given birth. He follows through on God's word, which, by the way, this completely debunks the doctrine that the Catholic Church has of the perpetual virginity of Mary. After Jesus is born, they have other children. They're right and fine in their marital union and relationship. But Joseph follows through on his obedience. Not only that, he follows through in obedience by naming Jesus. He calls the baby's name Jesus. This, this son, he knows, isn't his son. I mean, he could kind of just stand at a distance and be like, hey, that's the kid that shows up around here. I don't have any obligation to him, no, no moral legal standing before him. And yet Joseph follows through on what God has commanded, and he names the boy Jesus. And naming the sons, naming children in Jewish culture was a profoundly responsible act. It was a demonstration of belonging, a demonstration of that child is mine, and he does belong here, and I take responsibility, and I take leadership and ownership for him. When Joseph names Jesus, he's giving him the name God has given the son, but he's also saying, this boy is in my house. He's my responsibility. I must care for him. I must lead him. We name what is ours. See, Joseph here, he follows through completely in obedience True faith that results in a righteous response is always a response of obedience to the word of God. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He says, faith and obedience are bound up in the same bundle. You you can't have faith without having obedience. He that obeys God trusts God. And he that trusts God obeys God. It's it's one and the same reality. Friends, I would ask, are are you humble to the word of God in obedience? 
Or are you just one that hears God's word and like, yeah, that's cool, that's nice, but you don't have to follow through with any obedience. There's no practical outworking for you in your life. Again, I think that it's important, and we'll see this in the month of January as we uh, encounter our next series, we go to the epistle of James, who, again, I'll speculate James, the son of Mary and Joseph. James writes, don't be somebody who's just a hearer of God's word, nod your head and goes, yeah, that's nice. Be a theological bobblehead doll. Be someone who hears the word of God and obeys it, who follows it, who acts. The condition of your heart and your soul is revealed in your acceptance and embrace of the Word of God and in your obedience and follow-through of the Word of God. Where there's a lack of faith in Christ, there's a lack of trust in His Word, and that's displayed in a lack of obedience to the Word of God. Friends, Christianity isn't just a religion of the mind. It's not just about crossing our theological T's perfectly and dotting those I's specifically and directly. It's a living faith. It's an acting faith. It's a faith of receiving God's word, which has been implanted in our hearts, of trusting his word and obeying his word because what he has said is true. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Friends, are you at a crossroad in your life in some way? Is, is the path in front of you just, just unclear? There may be several options or choices in front of you of how to act how to move, and, and, and you don't know what's next. You may know that there's pain in some of those choices. You may know there's sorrow in that. It may come at a loss to you or even just confusion, and you want to respond faithfully to God. You, you want to respond righteously to him. The way forward for us in this is to trust and obey what God has said. It's to lean in on, depend on him all the more because Jesus himself is the word of God given for us. He is the one who has come, flesh and blood, laid down his life on our behalf, given himself as the word so that anyone who receives him will have life forever and will have it to the fullest. Jesus, as the word of God, invites us to come to him as he is God with us, dwelling with us, showing us his glory, and says, trust me, believe me, obey me, follow me in all things. Jesus displayed this in the way that he embraced the word of God. He came for us in our salvation. He followed his father's will and died on the cross for us. He won salvation for us by his perfect life and death and resurrection. And this man, Joseph, who we see as an eyewitness, serves, yes, as an example for us, and a godly one at that, to all point us to Jesus who is our Savior and who is our hope. So when you're at those crossroads, let's look to God's Word. Let's look to Christ. Let's receive God's Word and believe it. Believe Him. And as we hear His voice, let's follow Him because He alone will lead us to life and to grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken. You have spoken directly, fully, clearly, completely through your Son, our Lord Jesus. And you've given us your word 
scriptures are breathed out by you and they are, they are inspired by you and are useful in every way for all of life. So as we stand at crossroads when we can't see down the, the dark tunnel of what's ahead of us, when we're confused, we don't know what's next, when we're like Joseph in situations that are beyond our comprehension, give us grace, Lord. Help us, help us to trust your word, to have soft hearts and to humble ourselves and to pay close attention and believe, trust you. And may in that, Lord, we follow you and obey and live for your glory in all things. We thank you that you have spoken. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name.